Thanks, Swaggy. Excellent job. I, I gave him the wrong verses, and so that's why he said Laoda, whatever he said, <laughs> instead of Laodicea. Um, so that's my fault, not his. Um, welcome. Glad you all are here. Uh, we are reprising our journey back through the book of Colossians. Like, we're in chapter two, and we're like a third of the way through spring semester. So, it, like, I mean, in all likelihood, we're not going to finish this book before the end of the year. But we're going to try. And so tonight, as Swaggy read, we are going through, we're going to go through verses one through eight of Colossians chapter two. Um, and up to this point in the book, we've looked at, uh, we've looked a lot at Jesus, man. A lot of what Paul does in the beginning of these books is he talks a lot about the gospel, he talks a lot about Jesus, and he talks a lot about the church. And so um, what we've seen is we've seen Jesus, we've seen his power, his authority, who he is, uh, what he did, what that means for us, what that means for the church. Um, and what we're going to look at tonight is, as we've looked so much at Jesus and so much at what he did, we're going to look at what our faith looks like. Okay, we're going to look at, what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see two different kinds of faith. A contrast of faiths, if you will. We're going to see a steadfast faith, a faithful, strong faith, and we're going to see a, a diluted and deluded faith. And so tonight, that's what I want to look at, is a diluted faith and a strong faith. And diluted, most of you probably know what it means. Just think cold brew, like cold brew coffee. You make cold brew with, like, you, you seep it in water, like really coarse grind, right? You seep it in water for like 12 to 24 hours, and you get to concentrate. Nobody should drink that concentrate, right? Unless you're Alan. Alan Sanchez can drink that concentrate. Everyone else is not allowed to. And so what you do, what you do with that concentrate is you dilute it with water. You cut it with water, right? Because it's just so strong, right? And so when we talk about a diluted faith, what we're going to talk about tonight is a faith that is input and is watered down by, by, by things other than the gospel, by things other than what God's prescribed in his, in his word. And so... Um, as we examine our text tonight, we're gonna be, we're gonna, what's going to happen is we're going to be warned about a diluted faith, but on the contrary, what we're going to look at for the majority of our time is, what does a strong faith look like? What is the anatomy of a strong faith? Um, and so, uh, what I want to do is I just want to pray real quick. Um, actually, I want to read the text again. I don't think we can read the text enough, so I just want to read the text again, and then I want to pray, and I want to get at it. So, uh, yeah, Colossians 2, 1 through 8. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So let me pray just real quick. Uh, Lord God, we are, we, we are grateful for just this, this space and this time to, to open your word, to worship you, to love you, and to just try and grow in our understanding of who you are, who Jesus is, and what the gospel means for our lives, God. Um, God, I ask that we would, we would give this time to you, that we, that we would be, uh, that we'd be glorifying. God, I ask for me that you'd, you'd take my stuttering, my fumbling with words, and, and put them together in, in a way that, is, that, that, that makes you beautiful, God. Um, we love you. Uh, again, we're just grateful for everything you've given us. Um, Lord, be kind tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So out of that big text, it's a big, complicated, back-and-forth text. 
What I wanted, I think I got some popcorn, don't I? There it is. My bad. Just a little awkward. So what I want to do with that big, awkward swath of text is I want to zoom right in on the middle, okay? So I want us to look first right at, right at Colossians 2, verses 4 and 5. And this is kind of going to kind of be the fulcrum of our text. It's going to be the nucleus of what we're going to be studying tonight, all right? And so verses 3 and 4, um, 2 through 4, 4 through 5, my bad. Verse 4 through 5, I say this, this is Paul speaking, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to be your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so right there, we see that contrast of faiths, right? Firmness of your faith in Christ and diluted, diluted with plausible arguments. And so um, this is a letter, right? So he's writing this to people, a specific people in a specific time, in a specific context. And these people in Colossae, we've talked a little bit about it, but they're in this place where where they're, they're getting all this input from all these other faiths and all these other ideas and philosophies. And so uh, what's happening with their faith is they're being preached at by culture, by other faiths, by their governments, um, by their own thoughts and ideas, by their social structure. All these things are getting put into their faith and into what they, what, what they believe and think about God. And so, um, so, so, so they have kind of two options there. They either have to sift out what isn't biblical, what isn't God-glorifying, what isn't true, or they kind of make it all fit together, which is what a lot of them had been doing. And so, um, and I, part, of, part of this text, I really love Paul's honesty here, right? Look back at, at verse four with me real quick. Um, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with what? Plausible arguments. Plausible arguments, right? He's like, he, he's being straight up honest here. Like, okay, just imagine you're, you're on your floor, right? And you're talking to a dude about Christianity and faith. And he's like, you know what? I think Jesus was a potato. You'd be like, what? Get out of here, right? Ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Stupid argument. We, we, it's, not the, it's not the bat bleep crazy stuff that we fall for in our faith, right? <laughs> what it is, is the plausible arguments. Say you're someone that wrestles with the idea of hell and a God that would send people to hell. And so you, you're, you're in a conversation with someone else on your floor. And that person's like, you know what? I don't think a loving God would send people to hell. Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I think a God loves everybody and everybody gets, gets into heaven one way or another and I think that's what a loving God would do. And you're like, man, that sounds kind of good. I like that. And so that is a plausible argument. Those plausible arguments are those, um, those reasonable sounding statements and, and, and pieces that get into our faith that we might already be inclined to think about or hope in. And so Paul's talk, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about those reasonable arguments, those, 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 those statements, those conversations, those discussions that we might have, might already be inclined to, to think about in one way or another. And so um, also, just uh, another piece to this idea of the diluted faith is we're, look, at, uh, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of, of chapter 2. Um, right here in this text, this is, this is Paul going back to the idea of, of, of diluted faith going back to the idea of of a false faith, if you will, a faith that is not of the gospel. And so this is what he says, qualifying that idea of deluded faith. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and, and what? Empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So those reasonable sounding arguments are what? They're empty deceit. 
They're based on human tradition, not Christ. They're based on something that isn't the gospel. So a faith that is watered down, a faith that is diluted, is based on and built on and influenced by something that is not biblical, that is not the gospel. And so let's look at ourselves through this this idea of a diluted faith, right? So like for us, um, the prevailing wisdoms of today are, are naturalism, secularism, materialism, um, uh, spiritualism, the whatever. Tyler talked about something a couple weeks ago. Do you remember what it was? Like uh, talk about thinking positive and everything will work out. What was, you guys remember that? Mindfulness. Yeah. Like there's all these popular things that, that that today affect our faith. Like we adopt them. We 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 absorb them into what we believe about about reality and spiritual nature and stuff. And so um, even beyond that, though, even beyond all those smart sounding isms, is what you yourself want to believe, what you want to think about things, like with that idea of hell. I don't want to believe in a God that sends people to hell, so I'm not going to believe in that God. A diluted faith is one that says, I earn or I deserve God's kindness. One that says, I can't, I don't, I don't believe in a God that dot, dot, dot. I don't believe in a God that sends people to hell. I don't believe in a God that judges. I don't believe in a God that would do all those things in the Old Testament. A diluted faith is a diluted faith is one that takes its cues from culture, from philosophy, from your experience, and even our own desires above and beyond what God has revealed in his word in the gospel. A diluted faith is one that takes its cues from anywhere but the gospel. And so what's what's really beautiful about this text tonight is that Paul is not actually even going to address specific things. Paul's not even going to address a specific issue that this church is dealing with. What what he is going to do, he's he's going to give us several ways, several pieces of what a strong faith and undiluted faith looks like. And so we're going to see three. We're going to see three fuels, three foundations, three pieces in this text of what Paul describes as a strong, steadfast, firm, rooted, built-up faith. And so tonight, our first one, our first foundation for a steadfast, firm, Foundation for a firm faith, alliteration, what's up, uh, is gospel understanding. The first one is gospel understanding. So read with me Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever thought about this, like how, how wild it is that you live in the time period that you do, in the place on earth that you do? Yeah, it's, it's wild, right? Like you could have been born anywhere else in the world at any time throughout history, and yet you're born here, post-cross. You get the whole Bible to look at the cross through. You get the whole Bible to look at Jesus Christ through. Now, I want us to go back real quick. Per, like, put yourself in a space where all you got is the Old Testament, like, like the Israelites had, okay? All you had was the Old Testament to try and figure out what God's plan for you, God's people, is supposed to be. So all you got is the Old Testament. You, you, you have, um, 
you, you have what these, these mysterious prophecies, these, these hard to understand like books that Moses wrote down on scrolls and tablets that are supposed to be from Yahweh, from God, and all that's supposed to inform this Messiah that's supposed to come. Like we know a Messiah is supposed to come. What's that going to look like? Where's it going to be? And so place yourself there. I mean, I'd like to say I would have figured it out, right? Because like we can look back at those prophecies and say, well, duh, right? Like it's, it's not easy to say. Jesus will be born in Nazareth. There it is. Jesus will die on a tree. There it is. Like we got, we get all that. Now even put yourself when Jesus was alive and he was on earth. Do you guys get that we were the ones that nailed him to the cross? We would have been the same people expecting a conquering, world dominating king to save his people and bring his people to the promised land that is world, world, I guess, domination. We would have been those people waiting and expecting the conquering king. You see, what's beautiful for you and I is we have the whole of scripture to look at the cross through. We have the whole of scripture to look at Jesus through. And uh, so looking back at our text, there's a reason. There's a reason Paul calls the gospel a mystery. He uses the word mystery a lot in the New Testament because it was a mystery it was hard to understand. But even more than that, God hadn't yet revealed what he revealed to, to, to John. John hadn't written the books. He'd, Paul hadn't, the New Testament hadn't been canonized yet. They didn't have all these, one of the pastors at our church, okay, he, he loves calling the New Testament the best commentary on the Old Testament. So if you're going to read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, figure out what it's saying about the Old Testament. Like we get that. How wonderful is that? But my point is, is it was hard to understand. It was a mystery. Now look back at our text just real quick. I just want to look at verse 3 and 4 again. Or, sorry, end of verse 2. Um, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Which is Christ. This mystery, this profound, beautiful mystery that God has been building to throughout history is Christ. This complex thing is Jesus. So uh, I took AP Chem in high school. It's like my favorite class in high school. I freaking loved it. And uh, I remember that the first day of class, we walked in. Um, our, t- our teacher's name was, was Brennan Koch. So Mr. Koch had these beakers just with a random substances in them, like sitting on, on, the, on the counter. And he told us that at the, at the, end, of the s- end of the year, at the end of the semester, we would be able to use the things we learned, the tools we learned, how to use the, mater- the, the, the um, equipment and whatnot, and we'd be able to figure out what those substances are just with what we learned. No book, no nothing, just using what we learned. I, I, it was dope. It was awesome. I loved that class. But going to the end of the semester, we, we learned how to figure out what you know, hydrochloric acid was. We learned how to figure out what water was. He had water as one of them. That was fun. It was, it was, so having all of this understanding, all of these tools, all of this wisdom and knowledge, we were able to figure out what those were. Go back to the beginning of the semester, I couldn't tell you what water was from soap as they were sitting there. And so you and I, we live at the end of that semester. We have all the tools to see the mystery of the gospel. We have all the tools to see the mystery of who Jesus is. 
where those in the ancient world would look at those prophecies and decipher them and argue about what they meant and who they were talking about, you and I say, of course they're talking about Jesus. See, G- Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus, are the wonders of the wisdom of God that put any God you or I can conjure to shame, any idea of who God is that you or I can conjure to shame. See, knowing Jesus, who he is, and what he has done, are at the very core of what it means to have a strong faith. At the very core of a strong faith is who Jesus is. It's gospel understanding. You see, the whole of our lives as Christians is an attempt to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the implications of the gospel, to the implications of who Jesus is. And so, as I said, that that first foundation for our faith is is, is gospel understanding. Um, Now, how does this play out for for you and me? What does this mean as we we go away from here, right? Um, This means that when you listen to a sermon, or when you read a book, or when you're at church, or you're having a spiritual conversation, that which you're letting influence you better have at its core the gospel. See, I like to ask questions. Where's Jesus in that sermon? Where's the gospel in that book? Does that book make the cross big or does that make the cross small? Does it make much of me or does it make much of Jesus? See, when you listen to a sermon or read a book or attend church or whatever it is that you do, where is the gospel? You see, the most persuasive of those arguments are the ones that we want to hear and then the ones that dilute the gospel without you even knowing it. Let me give you an example. So, like, some people, like, some people like, I'm a good person, right? I'm, I'm a good person. I just make mistakes. Jesus died to make up for those, you know, those mistakes that I made. Like, I, obviously, no one's perfect, right? Jesus died to make up for those mistakes. But at the core, I'm a good person. I screw up sometimes. He just died for, you know, the screw-ups. But what does the Bible say about that? Well, Romans and Psalms say, no one is good, no, not one. No one is good. When I was in my womb, or when I was in iniquity, did my mother in my womb. That's, I don't have a womb, in case y'all wondering. I'm a man. In iniquity did my mother conceive me. We are at our core helpless without God. We are broken and sinful without the direct intervention of God. So in which of those two? I'm a good person? Or no one is good, no, not one? Makes the work of Jesus greater. Which of those makes what Jesus did on the cross more profound? Which of those communicates what God's word communicates? So ask yourself, when you're reading, when you're listening, when you're consuming, when you're thinking, is Jesus made much of? Is the gospel compromised? Is God being made big and am I being made small? If you're sitting under teaching that subverts the gospel in any way whatsoever, if you're reading a book or listening to a sermon that dilutes the gospel in any way whatsoever, you're consuming the empty deceits of those plausible and persuasive arguments. A firm faith starts with knowing and understanding the gospel, knowing who Jesus is and what he is like. So our, our, first, our first foundation for a firm faith is gospel understanding. Now, our second foundation uh, that Paul gives us in our text is gospel community, okay? Uh, read with me Colossians 2, 1 through 2. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So I want to talk about community, but the first place we need to start with this idea of community is Paul himself. Because Paul, he's the apostle planning churches. He's the one writing these letters, delivering sermons. He's the one uh, traveling the Mediterranean, the man that God has started using to build his church throughout the, throughout the world. He's the man God is using to build his church throughout the world. And do you know where he's writing these letters from? A lot of them? He's writing from prison. Right? He's writing from prison. Why is he in prison? Because he's a, a, a embezzler, a money launderer? No, he's in prison because it's illegal to propagate Christianity. It's, it's illegal to propagate, propagate, it's illegal to proselytize. I can't even. It's illegal to preach. There we go. It's illegal to preach Jesus and him crucified, risen from the dead, and salvation through that. See, I've encountered a lot of people in my, in my, in my life, like um, some of them, a lot of people that don't like Christianity, and some of them point to the idea that Christianity somehow is a power grab, right? The religion is somehow a power grab, but specifically Christianity, it's, it's a mask that people put on to, to, to gain authority over people, to lord their authority over people, to gain control or some kind of power, some kind of oppressive power over people. That's not, that's not reality. Like, look, just look at the, ele- the 12 disciples. Uh, this, this, 11 of the 12 were executed, and the 12th was tortured and exiled to an island. If their idea of... Of if, 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 um, if the point of what they were doing was to try and gain power and influence, if the proselytizing and preaching was to gain power and influence, they did a pretty terrible job at it. <laughs> 11 of the 12 being executed and the 12th being tortured. So did you know that? The Bible actually says if you're a Christian, you'll encounter suffering, you're going to encounter pain, that persecution and rejection and frustration and difficulty is inevitable. See, it's not for power that Paul was preaching Jesus. He had plenty of that before he started. You know, he's actually one of the chief Pharisees, had as much power in the religious community as you could possibly imagine. It wasn't for power that Paul was preaching the gospel of Jesus. It's because it was true. It was because the gospel is true. It's because it was compelling and transformative to the point where his power didn't even matter anymore. As Paul himself writes in Philippians, he counts all of it as lost for the sake of Christ, including his power, his very real and tangible power and influence. See, Paul was in prison for propagating a faith that he was sure of and convinced was true. And this is how these churches that he's writing to, this is how they often started. It's through Paul doing this where it was illegal, doing this where he wasn't supposed to be. By someone who was often Paul, caring so much about people and about the work of God in people's lives that he was willing to risk for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of these people. Paul's struggle and toil, those are words we see in these passages, Paul's struggle and toil and suffering is so that the gospel might be known by the Colossians, so that the gospel might be known by Missoulians, so that the gospel might be known by you and me. See, to cherish and treasure the gospel as the treasure that it is, is to love people with the passion that Paul did. It's to risk everything for the eternity of the people around you, those you like, and even those you don't. 
to talk about gospel communion, we start with Paul's willingness to risk and sacrifice for people he didn't even know. Read Colossians 2.2 2 with me. One more, one more time. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery. This second piece of, of a firm faith is gospel-centered community. And a gospel community at its core has gospel understanding. You can't have gospel community without gospel understanding. So we're doing this in a specific order. It's kind of like however text, we're going a little bit out of order here. But remember, we're, we're in a whole letter. We're in a huge letter and we're taking just a piece of it. Okay, so Paul's talked about the gospel all the way up to this point. He's assuming gospel understanding. We can never assume gospel understanding. So this starts, gospel community starts with gospel understanding and um, a gospel community starts with love. And a gospel community starts with a community that rallies not around common interests, not around common degrees, not around common circles of friendships. A gospel community rallies around the cross and around the gospel. Now, how does this play out? Um, that means when, when you make friends with each other, uh, when you care for each other, when you spend time with each other, it's the corporate commonality of Christ that shapes your eternity that, that, that you rally around. If you exist in a community that puts Jesus first and individual preference second, the plausible arguments, the plausible, empty, deceitful arguments. They're vapid. They mean nothing. So for you, for you guys, this means caring enough that when you see one of your people drifting from church, you say something to them. When you see one of your people thinking about or saying things or having opinions about something where the Bible doesn't agree with that, you say something because you care enough. Part of what we want to build here at GCF is a community that cares enough to do those things. I want to tell you what we're not. We don't want to, what kind of community we don't want to be here at GCF. We don't want GCF to be a safe space where you can, where you can just avoid the temptations and life of the world and on campus. Because let's face it, you're going to spend the rest of your life in that world. You're going to have to learn to deal with that world. We're also not after space you can just retreat when things get hard. That's not what we're looking for. Just a place that you come to consume, consume, consume when things get hard. We're also not after this tertiary space that's just another one of your friend groups. See, what we're after is a gospel-centered community, a gospel community that guards the gates of its doctrine furiously yet gently. A gospel community where we lay down our lives for each other, where we sacrifice our preferences and desires and wants for one another where we teach and admonish, where we encourage, where we help, where we're generous. All so that you might help me follow Jesus better. So that I might help Brad follow Jesus better. So that Brad might help Alan follow Jesus better. The second piece of a strong, vibrant, voracious faith is a gospel-centered community. 
Finally, our third, our third foundation and fuel for a gospel, um, for gospel, for a firm faith, for a firm foundational faith is um, gospel obedience. Let's look at uh, verses six and seven of chapter two. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, we have to begin with gospel understanding, knowing Jesus, knowing his life, death, and resurrection, and knowing this big idea that shapes everything else. It's the great exchange. Some of you have done discipleship with us. It's double imputation. Big word. It's a big word that means something pretty simple. Two things were given and two things were taken. Two things were given, those same two things were taken. One, Jesus on the cross took our sin and took the penalty for our sin. Two, Jesus gives us his righteousness and gives us the reward for his righteousness. That has to be at the core of your gospel understanding, which leads to then the gospel community, which you, where you reflect that, where you give up preference, where you give up what you deserve for the sake of those around you. Which all leads us to our third, which is the gospel obedience. You see, without the gospel to fuel our worship, any amount of obedience is ultimately an effort aimed at pleasing God, at earning something before God. If your obedience is not a response to what God's already done, then it's you trying to earn something before God. We want obedience not because that's the way we were raised, not because we're told to, not because that's what we think is right, not because obedience produces some kind of weight on the cosmic scale of karma so we'll get paid back someday. We want to be obedient because we understand the depth of the gospel. We understand the magnitude of what it is Jesus did. We understand the value and the treasure we hold so dear in the gospel. We want to be obedient because obedience is our worship. Our obedience is our response. Excuse me. So, um, it's not only... Uh, without uh, understanding the gospel, that our obedience is, a, is an elusive thing. So we have to understand the gospel. But without a community surrounding us, obedience is miles harder. I can tell you this from experience. Jocelyn and I, uh, four years ago, moved to Los Angeles for a couple years, and we left a, a vibrant community that loved us, that would tell us when we're jacked up, that would tell us when we're on the right track. We left a loving, gospel-centered community for a city of eight million where we knew two people. And I, it was brutal, man. We spent six months looking for a church, didn't have real relationships. We only knew these two people. She got to know people at work, but no, no, no Christians, no one's to speak into our lives in, in a spiritual way. Obedience and worship was so hard. Don't neglect how important your churches and your community is to your walk with God and to your obedience and your worship. Valuing community as God does and as God's word does, seeing community as important is a, is a worship that is supported and buttressed by the truth of the gospel and a community to surround you. All three of them gospel understanding, 
gospel community and gospel obedience, walking with God, they weave together to create this, the beauty of a strong and voracious faith. One not diluted by the plausible arguments of today. So if I could sum up this, this whole text for us, this whole, this whole evening for us, at least what we're learning, in this dense kind of awkward passage, the strength of your faith depends on your gospel understanding, the depth of your gospel community, and your walk with God, your obedience to God. Together. Never, now, neither of them are mutually exclusive. Together. They weave together to create what is a strong and vibrant faith. So one of the things I thought about when re- I was reading this text, trying to figure out you know, where to go with it, uh, one of the things I thought about was, was walking through a handful of those, you know, the most popular things that distract us, those, those like secularisms, he- like the example I gave about hell. Um, I thought about walking through a bunch of those and just explaining why those are, I mean, those are false, why the God of the Bible has designed something different. Um, but then as I prayed about it, as I thought about it, the reality is for the rest of your life, you're going to face different flavors of plausible arguments. You're going to be in different places, in different spaces, in different contexts, where what you're going to face is a different kind of plausible argument than the one you guys are facing on, the ones you guys are facing on campus right now. Some of you might not even live in the country, and you'll be in a completely different cultural context. But what will never change, what will always stay constant, what has stayed constant since the beginning of time is God is his gospel, as First Peter says. Paul's final push in our verse here, in verse 7. I want to read 6 and 7, just one more time. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What a wonderful God we have that he would make known to us that mystery, that profound mystery. What a beautiful God we have that he'd give us a community that cares. What a wonderful God we have that he would rescue us from our broken sin and save us. Let us strive for that joy-filled, strong, voracious, powerful, steadfast faith. Let us walk humbly with our God, knowing that truth wins and the truth of the gospel will stand regardless of whatever persuasive, fleeting arguments may tug at our heartstrings, our weak heartstrings. There are three pieces in our text tonight of a strong and vibrant faith. Know the gospel, live in gospel community, and worship with your obedience. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, again, we're just grateful. I can't say that word enough. We are thankful, as verse 7 says. We, we have hearts of gratitude that, one, you would just save us from our brokenness, save us from our rebellion, save us from who we were, and make us something new. Lord, I just ask that we would rest in that steadfast, everlasting, ever-faithful truth. God, I ask as we, as we look at our lives, as we look at our, uh, our time on campus, 
that we would embrace the vitality of gospel community, the need for it, the love of it. God, I pray that we would follow you with a worshipful obedience, a worshipful and and Christ-glorifying obedience that isn't being obedient to earn something, but being obedient because of what you've already done. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful and thankful. It's the name, your name we pray. Amen.